Grace coming to church. I'm excited to bring God's word to you this morning uh, from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 31. And if you don't know where Isaiah is, uh, basically, if you open your Bible to the middle, you'll probably land in Psalms. If you go Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then you'll hit Isaiah. If you've gone to Joel or Jeremiah, hang a Louie, head back to, to the middle there. This morning, uh, before we begin in Isaiah, I want you to think about when you are in the midst of dark times of your life, what is it that you turn to for help? Who do you seek advice from or what are the things that you do? We will see in a little bit below how Judah handles dark times in their life during the time of Isaiah. And since we're new to Isaiah, I think a little background for us might be helpful to orient us. Um, uh, so basically, we have the prophet Isaiah who preached during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were all kings of Judah, with Isaiah's ministry kicking off around the year that Uzziah died, as we see in the great throne room scene in Isaiah chapter 6. He was a prophet to the nation of Judah around 740 BC and prophesied for about 60 years or so. During this time, the nation of Israel was divided between the northern and southern kingdoms with the 10 tribes in the north and their capital in Samaria and the, 12 remain and the two remaining tribes in the south in Judah with their capital in Jerusalem. The neighboring nation Assyria was a dominant force in the land and began invading the 10 tribes of Israel in the northern kingdom around 740 until about 722 BC when we see that Samaria fell and Assyria took the people captive. Like Israel did, Judah attempted to align with other nations like Egypt. And when they did so, Assyria came against them because they did not like this. Judah was looking, unfortunately, to the worldly powers to help them in their time of need. Assyria did not like this, like I said, and came against Judah, attacking them until the Lord delivered Judah from their hand. But sadly, at this time, King Hezekiah let his guard down and invited the Babylonians into the land where they saw all the wealth that Judah possessed. Isaiah prophesied afterwards the coming Babylonian invasion of Judah and the exile of God's people from their land. And sure enough, after the times of Isaiah and the events that occurred, the Babylonians eventually turned their eye to Jerusalem and Judah was finally taken captive in 587 by Babylon, thus beginning the period of exile. One last point about the book of Isaiah before we begin. The prophet opens with the charges the Lord has against the people of Judah. He says in chapter 1, verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So God's people find themselves in a very dark time. And they are not only against uh, world powers that are arrayed against them, but they themselves have turned from the Lord, despising him and desiring to find comfort and help from worldly powers. God will pronounce judgment on Judah, but he will also announce that he will preserve and save a remnant. And with that, I'd like to go into our passage in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 31. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? 
Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right, hand, my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So the title of this sermon this morning is The Brightest Light and the Darkest of Times. And our main point that I want you to take away today and to remember as we're going through the passage is in the midst of your darkest of days, behold our great God. Three times we see that God reveals truths about himself and who he is. We will see that one, God is worthy, two, God is creator, and three, God is mighty. So our first passage here and our first point is that we will see that God is worthy in verses 12 through 20. This first section of our passage points out the worthiness of God with the author opening his monologue with a series of questions to reveal the God who is worthy is great. Creation is nothing compared to him, we see in verse 12, which jumps off with a doozy of a question. Is there anyone who has taken all the waters of the world and held them in the cup of their hand? And I've heard it said that if you take Lake Tahoe, which is a very deep lake, and you take all the waters and to spread that across the entire land of Texas, you will get a layer of water three inches deep. So not only is it Lake Tahoe, but you take all the other lakes, all the rivers, all the streams, all the ponds, all the oceans, and all the other bodies of water and gather them, up, gather them up, they would fit snugly into the hand of God. 
The second question in verse 12 tells us that the Lord can measure the heavens with a span. Well, what's a span? It's basically the distance between your thumb and your pinky. It's, this is the great Lord who is worthy of all worship. He can take the entire cosmos, the entire heavens, which are so vast and beyond my ability or yours to fully fathom, and he can measure them off with a span. This is how great our God is. The last question in verse 12 gets at the Lord taking the dust, the mountains, and the hills of the earth and measuring them in a balance of a, or a scale. The picture here is of a God who is truly beyond our comprehension, who takes all the mighty mountains, all the rolling hills of the Texas Hill Country and others, and the dust from all around the globe and placing them on the scale with the greatest of ease. This is our God. He is worthy as the incredibly great and powerful God who can take all the mighty things of creation and measure it off easily. He is other than, for no one else can do or has done what God is able to. And not only is he great, but the worthy God is the all-wise and all-knowing God. Knowledge and wisdom belong to God alone. In verse 13, we go from the God who is able to take all that is in creation and measure it out himself with the greatest of ease. And now we come to the question as to who can measure the spirit of the Lord. To help us understand what Isaiah is saying here, we can look to the New Testament to, to interpret this passage for us. And Paul actually quotes this twice. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.16 and Romans 11.34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, this isn't the organ of the brain. This is the mind. This is the internal thoughts of the Lord. This is his will. This is actually a rhetorical question that basically says that no one can truly know the mind of the Lord. And Isaiah continues his questioning in verse 14 to see if there is anyone that advises God or imparted to God an understanding of justice, taught him knowledge as if he didn't possess it all, or helped him understand anything that may have escaped his own understanding? Is there a grand consultant out there who advises the Lord? Does this consultant help God understand things better, like a mentor who God can go to when he comes across a difficult situation? The answer is an obvious and resounding no. Calvin says that because the Lord repeats these questions, he is pointing out that it would be foolish for man to question God or try to understand him. Another commentator put it this way, the human attempt to reduce the ways of God to knowledge that we can manage and comprehend is a violation of God's right as creator. Because God possesses all knowledge and all wisdom and all understanding, and we cannot possibly measure the mind of the Lord, we should thus not try to interpret why God is doing what he is doing, as if we can figure him or his ways out. For us to think that we need to understand everything that the Lord is doing is plain silly. And it's okay to leave it to mystery. Why? Because this is our God. He is beyond our ability to understand or comprehend. He is all-knowing, all-wise, and deserving of all of our worship. And then God turns his attention to the nations in verses 15 through 17. Why does he speak about the nations? Remember what I said was happening in Judah at this time. The rest of Israel was already under siege. 
and aligning with other nations. And Judah also was tempted to do the same, trying to ally themselves with mighty nations. So the Lord turns his attention to this. The Lord compares the nations of the world to a drop from the bucket. And if you were to take a bucket and try to go water a horse or clean a car, a drop from that bucket would not satisfy the thirst of that horse, nor would it be useful to clean that car. So up against the Lord, the nations cannot satisfy, nor are they useful. They cannot compare to the Lord. Then God says two things are not worthy enough as a sacrifice to him. The cedars of Lebanon is fuel, nor all the beasts within those woods. And I don't know if you're like me, but I like to burn trees. And if you ever do so, you can see how big and hot those flames get. And I'm sure there are some of you that have wonderful bonfires. But these are nothing compared to what the cedars of Lebanon could do in a fire. The cedars of Lebanon were known to be massive, growing to about 130 feet tall, and the forests there were vast. There are so many times in the Bible that speak to how majestic and great these cedars of Lebanon are. Yet God says that all these massive trees in all their totality is not enough fuel for his sacrifice. Plus, as vast as these oceans were, there would have been a ton of creatures and beasts in these woods. Yet even all those beasts were not enough to be worthy, a worthy sacrifice to this great God. God wraps this up in verse 17 by saying then, that all the nations are as nothing compared to him. This doesn't mean that they aren't truly strong and formidable in a worldly sense, because they were. But God is completely other than. And Egypt, Syria, Assyria, and Babylon, and all that they are and all that they possess are nothing compared to our great God. <clears throat> they are nowhere near sufficient to be a sacrifice to him. This is our God. The Lord is so worthy of our worship and beyond our ability to truly make an accept, acceptable sacrifice that even if we were to take our created world, it would be not enough. So in our first section here, we actually see a rebuke. And this is actually going to be one of two rebukes that God is going to put forth in this passage. In verses 18 through 20, God rebukes the idolatry that he sees. Isaiah opens up with a question about to whom or what we will liken our God to. This is the worthy God that was just described to be great, all-knowing, and all-wise. So then what will we liken him to? Absolutely nothing. We saw how great God is, and now there's an attempt to bring him down to our level and understanding and make something in his likeness. This is a disaster, because when we do, we create idols. And that's exactly what we see the author pointing to in verses 19 through 20. He speaks of two types of people here. The rich, who are the ones who can, avoid, uh, can afford the costly materials like gold and silver, and then pay a, a, a skillful craftsman, the greatest one of the land, to make an idol for them. And then we see the, the poor mentioned here as well. Though they not be able to afford the greatest gold or silver at all, they will take the best wood that they can find and do the same. And Calvin commented on this by saying that the rich and the poor are described here to show that all men fall into the trap of idolatry. Like Paul says in Romans, no one is righteous, no one does good. We all fall into idolatry. Remember, the people of Judah were facing great odds against the other nations. When times of difficulty come and the floor drops out from underneath us, we all try to grab hold of something sturdy 
anything to help us to survive. But as God's people, we should not turn from God to idolatry. God is so far beyond our ability to fully fathom that any attempt to grab hold of him would be idolatry. So we should not try to put God in a box, so to speak. We should not try to understand all that he is doing, for there will be mystery. We should not try to uh, figure him out as if we could take anything we learn about him and then try to fashion that into an object of his likeness. But the bottom line is, that Isaiah is trying to make, is that no one can compare to our God. Nothing we fashion, not the physical idols like we just talked about, not the things we put godlike value in today, such as money, people, comfort, social status, and many others, not the nations around us, not China or Russia, or even the US of A who all seem mighty. And as one commentator put it, the value of a God depends on the financial state of the devotee. Thus these idols that we create are only as valuable as our minds can create and the resources that we can use. Yet God, who is absolutely incomparable, is beyond our ability to liken to, let alone create, and beyond our ability to source. He's beyond us, period. Only the God of the universe, the one who is greater than all things, the one who possesses all knowledge, the one who is all wise, the one who cannot be compared to is the only one worthy of our worship. Our second point is God is creator, and we see this in verses 21 through 26. Not only is God worthy, but we now turn our attention to him as creator. In verse 21, just like the opening verses of, in the previous section, Isaiah employs the use of verbal irony, asking dramatically if we were there in the beginning. Isaiah not only asks these questions, posing them in a way that would remind us of the only one who knows all things and has full understanding, but he points out that this understanding and knowledge was there at the beginning of all things, from the foundations of the earth, and who was there from the beginning? Only God. You know, my kids think that I'm getting old, and I'm definitely getting there. But even though those we know from the Bible who lived hundreds, hundreds of years, even Adam who lived 900 years or so, none of them and none of us were there in the very beginning. Only God. He is the only one who is eternal. For as we hear in the very first words of the Bible in Genesis, in the beginning, God. Then in verse 22, we have this picture of God who sits high and lifted up. Whether the circle of the earth is the curvature of the sky or the heavens, it doesn't matter much. What we see is that God is sovereignly sitting, reigning above. And the testimony of scripture is, is, is the same. God is sovereign over all things. Lamentations 3.37 says, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? And then Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So we see that nothing is left to chance. The Lord is sovereign over every scenario. And Matthew 10, 29 through 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God's sovereignty stretches to the lives of all the small woodland creatures. It surely definitely and definitely governs every bit of our lives as well. Our God is the one who sits above all on his throne to sovereignly rule. 
and we are like little insects to him, which is just another picture of how other than God truly is. And this God who reigns over all is again pictured as the worthy and great God who created the heavens. So great even that when he created them, he stretched the heavens out like a curtain and he gave them to be a tent for us to dwell in. So as verses 21 through 22 share, this is our God. These verses speak of how God created all things and governs all things, revealing that, of course, God, who is high and lofty, is the one who has eternally existed and as creator set up the heavens and sovereignly reigns over them all. We then turn to another aspect of creation, God's total sovereignty over man and man's temporality in verses 23 through 24. In verse 23, the Lord brings up those mighty leaders his people have been so concerned with. These strong leaders of great nations were feared and God's own people trembled at, his might, at their might. Then in verse 24, we, just see, we see how just, and so, how just sovereign God is as creator over his creation. Isaiah uses repetition here, speaking of how scarcely these leaders are planted, sown, and allowed to take root before the Lord reduces them to nothing. And this repetition helps to emphasize just how temporal and subject to the complete might of the Lord these mighty princes are. This repetition helps to leave no doubt about how much other than God is compared to the mighty princes of our land. So whether it was King Sennacherib of Assyria or Rezin of, King, uh, of Syria during the time of Isaiah or Putin in Russia, Xi in China, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, they are all temporal. They will not last. And how does Isaiah say the Lord handles them? By the simple expiration of his breath. And then they will wither at that time, and God's own creation and the tempest, which is under his sovereign control, will take away their remnants. But see, too, that this will occur when God decides to blow on them. Their demise is certain. But the timing of it is completely up to the Lord when he wills that they rule no more. Again, beloved, this is our God. God as creator is revealed in these verses as one who is eternal and completely sovereign. So just like the first section, we had the rebuke about idolatry that God was seeing. We see a second rebuke coming in verses 25 through 26 when God tells them that he is incomparable. Just like in verse 18, God asks again, to whom or what will we compare God to? God is going throughout these verses to lay out how worthy and great and sovereign and eternal he is, that the answer to this very rhetorical question is plainly obvious. No one. For he is other than. He is great in incomparability, sovereignty, might, and power. In his rebuke of his people who have turned to earthly powers, God helps his people by telling them to look up. So I don't know if you've ever gone outside on a clear night and looked up at the stars and been so overwhelmed by them. The vastness of the night's canopy with all the stars that can be seen is amazing and breathtaking. It elicits wonder and amazement. And the Lord is telling his people to do just that. Step outside and look up. See all the stars all the hosts of heaven in the sky, God created them and God knows them all. Even when God took Abraham out and asked him if he could count all of them, he couldn't. Abraham, who Israel regarded as a key figure of their family, as one who was really important, even Abraham 
could not count all the stars. Yet God created all of the stars. And not only does he, not, does he know their exact number, but he knows their true name. They hear him calling, and they come. God, the creator of all things, and as Isaiah says, who is mighty and strong in power, calls all the stars out by name, and not one is missing from his sovereign control. Compare this with verses 18 through 20. What man creates and what he, he designates as an idol requires that man to look down on that idol and worship it. Yet God calls us to look up at what he created, to behold and worship the creator and the magnificence of his creation. Because we create junk, he created the heavens. Our third point is God is mighty from verses 27 through 31. We've seen that God is our worthy creator. Now we will see that God is mighty and even how God's might works for us. In verse 27, Isaiah brings up a complaint, a fear that God's people articulated. They thought their God had forgotten about them. And I don't think the people are saying that they are able to get away with things hidden in the dark or that they were puffing themselves up to say that their rights and that God is that they have rights and that God is ignoring them. And I'm sure there was a lot of sinful responses to the Lord at this time, but I think actually this question is a genuine one in the midst of a hard time for God's people. Like I said, they wondered if God had forgotten them. And how does God answer them in verse 28? God reminds his people that he is the worthy one who is eternal. He is the worthy one who is creator. He is the worthy one who is mighty and knows all things. These are all truths about the Lord that his people were told in the preceding verses to help them remember and to reiterate that this Lord who is the eternal creator can handle any problem they have with complete power and knowledge. And not only will God not forget his people, but he will supply them from his own great mighty self, as we see in verses 29 through 31. This is our God, and behold how mighty he is. Take a look at a Mr. Universe or any other strong man or woman or whatever you see. Any of these people that may be out there, they may be extremely strong, but none of them could supply and take their strength from themselves and give it to another. Only God can do this. This is truly how mighty he is. The Lord supplies the strength we need when we are at our weakest. In verse 29, it says that God will supply the strength the weak need. But not only that, it seems to say that God will help us to endure as we keep losing strength. For it says that he will increase strength for those who have no might. As one commentator put it, it is characteristic of the creation that it wears out and becomes exhausted. But Isaiah has insisted in every way available throughout this passage that God is not part of the creation. So we who are infinite wear down. And the older I get, the more I understand this. And I think this is what Isaiah is pointing out to when he says, and he, he contrasts that with the youths that are around them and among us. They don't wear out, but they will. When, the way we feel, they won't wear out. The use of this in the original language seems to indicate that to the audience that Isaiah is speaking to is not necessarily speaking just of young people, so to speak, but the greatest athletes in their prime or the strongest soldiers among their armies. Even these will wear out eventually. Isaiah tells us in verse 31, there is only one condition to renew their strength in the Lord, and that's to wait on the Lord. A commentator said this expression implies two things, complete dependence on God 
and a willingness to allow him to decide the terms. As Judah was experiencing tumultuous times and circumstances that were leading them to idolatry and fear, God reminds them that he is the mighty one who has all the power in the world at his disposal and that he is ready to give that to his people if they would only wait on him, acknowledging their complete dependence on him and trust that he will carry out his plans according to his good and all-wise and all-knowing self. Brothers and sisters, this is our God, the one who strengthens his people. And not only does God promise Judah that he will strengthen them, but as a result, they will soar, they will run, and they will walk all without wearing out. So two points that I want you to take away from this passage. First is, behold our God. It's like when John the Baptist saw Jesus walking up. He was arrested in his steps and he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God. For those who have put their faith in Christ, behold and rejoice in the Lord, for he is the one who is worthy, creator, and mighty. Believer, praise your God because he mercifully reveals himself to us. And just behold what he reveals about himself in this passage. We see that, that we are to behold the God who is the worthy one, the one who is so great and possesses all knowledge and wisdom. We are to behold the God who is creator, the one who is eternally sovereign. And we are to behold the God who is mighty, the one who strengthens, strengthens those who wait for him. And what should be the response to this revealed knowledge of God? The right response for the believer is to worship the Lord. This great God who has thusly revealed himself is worthy of our worship. So, beloved, re relish in the God who has revealed himself in the Bible. And take this knowledge to that next step and worship him above all things. Do so even now, even today. For the unbeliever, the sure and fuller revelation of God should incite fear in you. When we look at verse 28, it does seem to say that all will come to the realization that God is God. As we see in there, it says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Two things about this passage. One, when the prophet asks these questions, he is asking a question in a way that has only one answer. We know this because passages like Psalm 19 and Romans 1 tell us that the Lord God is revealed in the natural world, and thus you are without excuse to not know that he is the creator and something is wrong in your relationship with him. But also, you are sitting here, and I'm telling you from the very word of God here in Isaiah 40 that God is God. Second, the very next statement after these questions is the truth, that the Lord is the everlasting God. So when the time comes for your last breath, and take it from me, friend, you have no idea when that next breath will be your last. The very next moment you will meet the everlasting God, your knee will bow, and he will pronounce judgment on you. Friend, I plead with you, turn from your sins and behold your God. Just like the one condition to receive the Lord's help in our time of need is to wait on him, there is one condition to receive pardon from our sins. Two parts but one condition, because they must go together. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins and your sinful idolatrous ways and turn toward the Lord, believing on Christ that he paid the penalty for your sins. Repent on the, and believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. For if you don't, the Bible is very clear what that pronounced judgment will be for you. 
It will be everlasting punishment and torture in hell. And the one who meets out that punishment is the very one you rejected. And the truth in verse 28 that speaks to the Lord not growing faint or weary to provide what his people need is true also. That he will not be faint, he will not be weary in extending his just wrath for all eternity on you and on those who have rejected Christ in their living days. And the only way to avoid this is to repent and believe. The second point I want you to take home is that believers can take comfort that God provides the brightest light and the darkest of our days. As I approached this passage, I wondered why this amazing revelation about God is provided here. On the face of it, this is a wonderful picture of God. But why after 39 chapters, much of which is spent with the Lord condemning Judah and Israel and all the nations that surrounded them for their idolatry and despising of him, why would God provide this picture now? Also, this passage comes in the midst of a national panic of sorts when Judah was seen all around them bloodshed, their own weak leaders who compromised Judah's spiritual and physical lives, let alone the wicked nations who were against them. And when you look at the entire book of Isaiah, one thing to note is that God is often shining the brightest of lights in the darkest of times. Believers in the midst of their darkest of days can find hope in the whole high and holy one who is the great God revealed in these passages. The circumstances that surrounded Judah were real and scary, and they felt trapped, defeated, alone, forgotten. And isn't that true for us too? Isn't it true that when we are bombarded with circumstances that are so hard, so bleak, so dark, that we feel like God has forgotten us? And though we have the full counsel of God in our hands, we too forget about our God when our circumstances close in on us. We too question him and cry out, Why, O oh God, if you are all-powerful, if you are all-wise, and you know all things, and you are good, then, and I am one of your children, then why is this terrible thing happening to me? Have you forgotten about me? Remember how God answers his people in verse 28. God lovingly responds to his children, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Remember what God has told us, brothers and sisters. God just went through all of these beautiful words and pictures of how worthy and how mighty of a creator he is, telling his people who were experiencing very hard times that if God created the stars, every single one of them, knowing their exact number and not one is lost, and he calls them all by name, not forgetting one of them, then how, O oh child of God, how could his people be forgotten by him? How could he know each of the stars and their name and not know his people, not remember them, not care for them? Beloved, hear this. He who is mighty and great enough to bring out the heavenly hosts cannot simply forget about his people. He sees your pain and he takes the brightest of lights himself and he shines that brilliant light into the depths 
of your darkness to say, I am here. Look to me. And then not only that, but the Lord will sustain you, my beloved. As we saw at the end of the passage, God will supply your every need. He will sustain you with endurance through the very trial that plagues you. Remember what that one condition was to receive the promise of endurance. It is to wait for the Lord. As the psalmist says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That waiting spoken of in verse 31 is a waiting that is a life of confident expectation. Confident that the trial will go away? No. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes the very hard thing you're walking through will not change. God doesn't promise to take away our trials, but he does promise to supply our needs in the trials. So that confident expectation is not for the trial to go away. It's confidently expecting that the Lord will be near you in the trial. For as the psalmist says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. This, brothers and sisters, is the bright light in the midst of your darkest of days, the nearness of God. Finally, let's turn briefly back to verse 16. Remember in this verse, Isaiah says that even the cedars of great cedars of Lebanon were not in, and nor the entire number of beasts in those forests would be an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. And Joel did a great job of explaining to us the Old Testament sacrificial system, so we don't need to repeat that today. But a dummy's version basically just says, essentially, a blood sacrifice is required to atone for our sins. As the Bible tells us, the wages of sin is death. Therefore, death is required to pay the penalty for our sins. Beloved, you and I cannot rid ourselves of our own sin. There is nothing we could do to atone for it. The penalty for our sin is too great and leaves us with really only two options. Either we die in our sins and be condemned eternally to hell, or God has to intervene. So as verse 16 says, if even the forests of forests out there with all of its animals are not good enough for a sacrifice to the Lord, then what possibly could be? The Bible tells us that Jesus came to live a sinless life and die a death to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus' sacrifice was completely sufficient to pay the penalty for his people's sins, so much so that it says in Hebrews 10:12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He did not have to come back year after year to offer up a sacrifice. He did not have to offer himself even on a pyre as large as the forest of Lebanon could provide. No, Jesus came and offered his life on the cross to be the final sacrifice as payment for our sins. And by his sacrifice, we can have eternal life. On the cross, we see just what God did, so we are not lost in our sins. So we can go from looking up at the stars to looking up to the cross to see what God has done for his glory and to save his people. The darkest of our days, not circumstantially, but the darkest recesses of our heart where our sin dwells, in this darkness, Jesus came to shine the brightest light, namely himself. He came to pierce the darkness of our hearts with his bright light to deliver his people from their sins. Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, our Emmanuel, meaning God with us, who is the embodiment of the nearness of God. Jesus, who is the worthy God, 
the Creator, the Mighty God. Believer, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the brightest light in the midst of your darkest of days. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the revelation in your word of who you are. And Lord, I know we're just scratching the surface of, of, of who you are, Lord, and, and this is what you've chosen to reveal to us, but this is enough. This is enough for us to be able to turn from our dark circumstances, to turn from our sins, to know you through the blood of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that Christ is the brightest light in the darkest of days. Christ is the brightest light in the darkest recesses of our heart, where his bright light comes in to scatter away the darkness, to scatter away the darkness of our sins, and that if we were to believe and trust in him, we could have eternal life. We could live in the bright light of Christ, for that will be our eternal days. We will live in the light of Christ May that be so true for us to, that we would grab hold of it, that we would know it, we would proclaim it, we would rejoice in it, we would worship you now. We would turn from our sins, we would turn from these hard times that we endure. And we would cling to the hope that we have in Christ, that we would wait on the Lord, that we would take great confidence in you, knowing that you hear us, you love us, and you are more than worthy to take all the things that we have and help us through it. In Christ's name we pray.